This week we'll be talking about Matthew's chapter 16 and 17. If I were to give a theme to these two chapters, it would be that tensions are starting to rise. Uh, we're not at the very, very end of Jesus' teaching yet, but you're starting to notice um, a shift in tone. Uh, he predicts his death twice in these two chapters, and um, Jesus is starting to talk more and more about uh, his death and what will happen to uh, what will happen to his disciples and apostles after that time, and you start to see attacks from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the first thing that happens in chapter 16 is that the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, demand a sign from Jesus. Anytime the Pharisees and the Sadducees are joining forces, you know that something is very serious in their eyes. Um, as we've mentioned earlier in this class, the Pharisees and the Sadducees hate each other. Sadducees are very chummy with the Romans and they are in the highest position of power. They have, in the eyes of the Pharisee, traded some of their religious integrity for power. And then you have the Pharisees, which are the uh, devout of the devout in society. They are the preachers, the one with the most knowledge. Um, so they both see themselves as numero uno. So if they're getting together and joining forces, you know something serious is afoot. And in this case, they're trying to stop this Jesus guy. So they come to Jesus together and they say, all right, uh, if you're God, show us a sign from heaven. And there are a couple other times in the Bible that we see people asking God for a sign. Specifically in the Old Testament, we have Abram before he becomes Abraham. We have Gideon and we have Hezekiah. All of these times they are asking God for a sign. So what's the difference between that and the Pharisees and the Sadducees asking? And the big difference is when you look at intention. Abram and Hezekiah and Gideon believe in God and they're asking for an assurance from God versus the Pharisees and Sadducees, which are looking for a way to disbelieve. So when you look at that, you can sort of see why one is seeing in a positive light and one is seeing in a negative light. One is asking God for assurance. The other one is testing God. So they ask God or they ask Jesus to predict a sign from heaven. And a sign from heaven isn't heaven as in where God lives necessarily. The best way to interpret that is a sign from the sky. So can you predict the weather? Can you predict what the sky will look like? Can you predict what that's going to mean? And Jesus comes back and says, no. <laughs> Have you not been seeing what I've been doing? No, like anyone can do that. Um, predicting uh, divination was something that sorcerers would do in that time so it wasn't something they pulled out of thin air it was a common sign of showing mystical power asking someone to read the signs so that is something that the Pharisees and Sadducees are asking of Jesus and he says no anyone can say oh the sky's red it's going to be good weather and we would look at that and be like mmm the sky's blue but uh, a red sky was a pretty common phenomenon in Jerusalem and Judea because that just meant that wind and weather was coming from the Mediterranean Sea inward. So he wasn't predicting something crazy. A red sky was something that would happen there. So after Jesus uh, rebukes the Pharisees and Sadducees, 
the disciples and the apostles and Jesus sail across the lake and they um, the disciples and apostles forget to bring bread so God or Jesus uses this opportunity to talk about the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees so using yeast as a metaphor is something we've already seen we saw this in Matthew chapter 13 uh, Jesus talks about yeast as a, a metaphor for faith the uh, woman can take a little bit of yeast and put it into 60 pounds of uh, bread dough and the yeast will end up throughout the entire bread dough so there yeast is a little thing that becomes large and here yeast is a small bad thing that can grow so Jesus is warning the disciples against the disbelief and the cynicism of the Pharisees and the Sadducees so bread making and using yeast as a metaphor may sound something weird to us but it would be very common and very well-known knowledge to first century uh, Jews and Christians so bread making was something that the woman was in charge of and it took about two to three hours every single day and they went through the entire process so if you remember like the hen who will help me grind the wheat who will help me <laughs> yeah that is what um, Jewish women had to do every day they took they started with the grain they took their pestle and their bowl more there we go they actually ground the grain into uh, flour and then they would mix it add their yeast um, it would be left over from a previous batch and they would add that old yeast to the new bread to leaven the bread and then they would bake it and after it was baked that would be what would feed their family for the day so their daily bread that whole process took about two to three hours and uh, so not only women would know about that it would be something that everyone was aware of the idea of how to make bread so using yeast as a metaphor was something that was pretty common in today's day and age the thing we would say to use as the thing that could easily spread instead of yeast we would probably use cancer we would say just because cancer is something that spreads rapidly right and that's something that you hear a lot as a metaphor in today so yeast is the metaphor that they use um, so Jesus says beware of their yeast and the apostles and the disciples are like darn it he's getting on to us for forgetting to bring bread which is an absurd thing because what did Jesus just do twice recently? Bread. Yeah, fed literally thousands of people with a few loaves of bread. So the idea that they're concerned that Jesus is speaking about actual bread is almost intentionally dense. Uh, the fact that they don't realize that he's speaking metaphorically here. So he says, you of little faith, uh, for he is um, chiding the disciples for not understanding what he's talking about and it seems a little a little uh, harsh to say you don't understand my metaphor that means you don't have any faith but what Jesus is drawing a parallel here between is faith is what gives you spiritual understanding so if the disciples and the apostles had that faith they would have understood what Jesus was talking about so Jesus could have said, oh, ye of little understanding, oh, ye of little faith. You know, to tag on to that, like yeah. when you go back to Matthew 14, in 
Jesus tells them, you know, he's walked across the water and he says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Well, Mark 6 talks about they doubted because their hearts were hard, mm -hmm. talking about the disciples. And so sometimes when I just read Matthew by itself, I'm like, man, that's kind of, like you said, it seems harsh. But then when you have that insight, like their hearts were hardened, that's kind of like they're not trying to understand. Yeah. There's definitely an intention that's yeah, that's just, there. When you said that, I thought, well, that goes back to what Mark revealed about that. Yeah, because especially as um, new Christians or even Christians at any stage of life, if you don't understand something, if you were to read this out of context, you would be like, oh, well, it's yeah. Jesus is mad that I don't understand what he's saying. But he's that's not what he's mad at. He's he's saying. You need to have the faith. If you have the faith, you will understand. So back to our handy dandy map. Uh, earlier, the last time I spoke, Jesus and his disciples were crossing the sea from Capernaum down to Gadara. That's where the demoniacs were. This time they're headed in the opposite direction. So let me come around here. Capernaum is home base. Anytime they're going home or typically whenever they're traveling, they're going to or from Capernaum. So here's the Sea of Galilee. And they are going north to Caesarea Philippi, the region of Caesarea Philippi. There are two different Caesareas. Um, the one that we're talking about here is Caesarea Philippi. So you have to make sure you're not getting it confused with the other one that's in Israel currently. Um, and it just says the region of. So... Um, we don't know if they were exactly in the city or right next door, literally six kilometers, is Dan. And Dan comes up in the Old Testament as a place where there is a lot of, um, a lot of worship of false gods, particularly Baal. So that's the region in which they are traveling. Uh, Matthew doesn't talk about anything that happens there. Uh, next thing we know is they're coming back down to Capernaum, but um, a big important thing that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with where they are, but something big happens there, and that is that Peter declares Jesus the Messiah. And also a side note on um, topography. So down here, sandy area, low to, the, low to the sea level, but then it very quickly gets much steeper and much uh, higher in elevation. Mm -hmm. It's a mix. Um, the actual city itself was very Gentile heavy, but there were Jews in the area. It was a, it was a, if you go there, there's a cave, mm -hmm. and it's very pagan. In fact, taking people up to that area, would, uh, close to that cave, would be a no-no because you never got anything anywhere close to a pagan temple and this was an extreme area this is actually where the uh, water from the uh, one of the sources of, of the Sea of Galilee comes out of that cave and they have little niches in the wall right there where they put their idols so to even get close to that cave would have taken I'm sure the apostles they were following Jesus and he went up there and that's when he started talking about uh, uh, he, he made some very 
very good point, but that, that they would have uh, uh, not wanted to go to that area. So he was making a real point to these people. Out of that cave comes all sorts of ungodly things. Right. And Jesus, in this, while he's in this area, does start talking. He predicts his death for the first time. So it's a spooky location and kind of a spooky concept. So Peter is, uh, declares that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is where God says, upon this rock I will build my church. So I, when preparing for this class, um, sort of dug into this idea as Peter of rock that in a way that I never had before. And it's kind of like nerdy in a word way. So please bear with me because I find this exciting. And if you don't, I apologize. So um, what does Peter mean? I sort of just mentioned it. Peter means rock. Um, and it's sort of like, to us, we're like, Peter means rock in the way that like, oh, I named my child Rebecca. That means servant of God. I named my child blah, blah, blah. It's just kind of like a fun fact. But in the actual Greek, Peter means rock. Petros or Petra is rock. Uh, so that it's not like, a oh, that's a fun meaning thing. It's the words are pretty much the same. But quiz did Jesus speak in Greek to his disciples and apostles? Aramaic. No, he spoke in Aramaic, yes. Does anyone know what the Aramaic word for rock is? That's okay, I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> it is, there's two ways of pronouncing it. One is Cephas, when we use that name in, in America, Cephas is the pronunciation, pronunciation we use. But another way to pronounce it is kepha. So that is the Aramaic word for rock. And um, that is the word that Jesus would have used for Simon Peter. Peter. Fun fact, uh, Peter in English would probably be called Rocky. We'd be calling him Rocky. That is more of an example of like, <laughs> Not the like da 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 da, but um, if we were to actually have translated this from Greek to English correctly, quote unquote correctly, we would all be calling Peter Rocky, which is hilarious in my mind. But that sort of gets the idea of how the word actually is literal. So to the Greeks and to those speaking Aramaic, that word is the same word. Uh, there is another character in. Uh, in these chapters, character, another person, whose name sounds very similar to Kepha or Sefa. Can anyone think? Caiaphas. So um, Caiaphas also comes from this Sefas, Kephas idea. So that, to me, that adds a whole nother layer of upon this rock. Because Caiaphas was, who was Caiaphas? Yeah, the high priest, um, which was top of the top. So the idea that Jesus is saying, in a sense, you are my Caiaphas. You are my new high priest for this church. I'm not saying we should all go out and become Catholics, <laughs> because that was sort of a very Catholic idea, right, of Jesus or Peter as the first Pope. Um, but it's sort of, it 
adds another layer of what foundation or the rock means um, that Peter is really Caiaphas, Caiaphas. And a fun fact uh, about Caiaphas, um, archeologists are pretty sure that they found his tomb in 1990. Uh, you can go see it. It is in a museum in Jerusalem now. Um, this is it. Uh, so the, the tomb, it's not confirmed. There are people that dispute whether or not this is the Caiaphas that um, is spoken about in uh, the Gospels. But it says his name in Caiaphas as Caiaphas, which is the sort of Greek uh, transliteration. So people in Aramaic said the word Caiaphas out loud, and people that spoke Greek had to be like, okay, so how do we write that in Greek? And what they came up with was Caiaphas, which is now we have transliterated from Greek into English. So it's gone through a couple transliterations, but the tomb had the original Aramaic and the Greek written on it. So it's given archeologists and historians clues of how we would pronounce Caiaphas or um, spell it in Aramaic. Uh, and then there's another tomb found in 2011 that um, is Miriam's tomb. And they, her, not any Miriam that we know, but Miriam, son of, or daughter of Caiaphas. So there's more uh, inscriptions on that tomb that have also helped out uh, archeologists. So Peter, AKA Rocky, AKA Caiaphas, uh, declares that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus blesses him. Uh, Jesus then talks about um, the new church, what it will look like after Jesus is gone. And he says that the gate of Hades will not overwhelm this new church. Uh, the gate of Hades, again, Hades is a Greek term. Uh, Hades is the underworld, right? But they are Jews, so Jesus probably did not uh, utter the word Hades. He probably used the term Sheol, which is Jewish uh, afterlife. We, it's not exactly appropriate to call it Jewish hell or what they think of as hell because the idea of what the afterlife was uh, evolved throughout Jewish history. Another way of saying that is that God uh, revealed progressively what the afterlife would look like. So in the very beginning, as best as we can understand, um, hell was, or there was no hell, it was just afterlife. Sheol was where Everybody went, it didn't matter if you were good or bad, animals went there too, there wasn't um, pain and suffering, it was just sort of nothingness. But God would raise people from Sheol eventually. So Sheol was just sort of like frozen in time waiting for God. That was the original, from what we understand, idea of what Jews thought the afterlife was. Later comes this idea that if you are, um, good or if you believe in God, if you are a good Jew, then you get to go straight to being with God and Sheol becomes more hell. It's more if you are bad, if you don't follow God's commandments, you go to Sheol away from God. So Jesus is saying the gates of Sheol, which is a pretty common term for death. So death will not overcome the new church. 
Any questions on that? I will admit that I'm not really an expert on Jewish afterlife theology, but. Is that the same as the gnashing of teeth? Uh, it seems like the Greek, the Jews always talk about where well, you're going to be going to where there's gnashing of teeth and something else. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Um, so th- that was used in a metaphorical sense, wasn't it, somewhere? Again, this is not my strong suit. Um, that, that's a little earlier in Matthew, and one of the uh, Jesus talks about when, you, when you're separating the wheat from the chaff. Yes, yes. That we're gonna we're gonna keep the wheat, mm-hmm. and then we're gonna burn the chaff where yeah. there's wheat and national tea, which is in a Jewish sense. Suffering, or uh, it's not suffering as much as um, we we would say crying, or it's where uh, the absence of joy is the opposite of that. That we national teeth is not it's buying stuff, you know, because when they were. if someone dies, you know, you would not bathe, you would you would rip your clothes. That's like national teeth. So that you would you would appear to be uh, grieving. And so that that's weeping of national teeth has that connotation of it's as far from joy in Abraham's bosom as you can get. Because we're gonna run into the rich man Lazarus story yeah. a little bit later. Where you see a little bit more of the uh, the Jewish concept of afterlife, that Lazarus is in you know when Jesus talks about Lazarus being first man's Abraham's bosom, nobody goes oh what is that? They kind of understand that. It, now their theology is not as pronounced as ours uh, because Sheol is this kind of this neutral place where. It's not Abraham's bosom, and it's not the opposite of that. The idea, the idea of um, like torture, like hell or Sheol, is a place where you are tortured, isn't a Jewish concept. That is Western. That's more Hades, Greco-Roman inspired. Um, so Sheol, the the gnashing of teeth is that is inspired by being separated from God. That isn't um, pain that's inflicted additionally. It's just the idea, very. Because your uh, being is not with God, you are. That's where the pain comes from. Yes? Keep in mind, remember I said they were in Caesarea Philippi, mm-hmm. this cave. So get the picture. There's a beautiful garden, stream, and right behind them was this cave. And all of a sudden it took on new meaning. He's talking about, a lot of people said, this is the gates of hell right over there and the pagans believe that so when Jesus is, is talking to Peter and everything he's probably no further from here to the end of the building they can see that ominous cave that dark place and a lot of people a lot of the Gentiles believe this is where the one of the gates to hell is so he's talking about it so they really this is this is a field trip with the apostles so when he's talking about this, really takes on an ominous picture. Right. Remember, Jewish theology, God is up 
hell is down, or Sheol is down, the opposite of God. So yeah, that that, that So when you went into Jews, did not go into caves because that was God did not live in caves. So when you actually see Jewish figures going into caves in the Old Testament, you see the faith they have that they would go into what they would see as Sheol, away from God. Where's God live? Where's God live? Top of mountains, which we're seeing in like two seconds here. You know, when you go to God, when you go, you go up to go to God. Because think, think of uh, the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament. What were they doing? They were building a ladder to God. So, so in their theology, God is up, hell is down. And that's something that we still hold on to today. You know, where's heaven? Angels, angels are up in the sky, right? I once asked mom and dad when I was very little how the angels get around when the clouds aren't next to each other. <laughs> oh, the angels are up there. I guess the idea of flying wasn't really, you know, but. Um, so, immediately after Peter declares Jesus as Messiah, as the Son of God, uh, Jesus, or Peter takes one step forward and then two steps back. Uh, as is the case with all the apostles <laughs> in the Gospels, it seems like. So Jesus predicts his death for the first time. And then uh, Matthew says that Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him. Rebuke is the exact word. Yeah, yikes. So uh, that is cringeworthy to us because we know that Jesus is literally God incarnate. And it seems like an incredibly stupid thing to do to rebuke God incarnate. But on top of that, the fact that Peter was Jesus's disciple and he rebuked his teacher is culturally a huge no-no. Uh, that isn't what was done. Uh, your teacher knows everything and you know nothing. You would even literally walk behind your teacher at all times. Um, everything was set up for you to be learning from your teacher and there was the utmost respect there. Uh, so the fact that Peter is rebuking Jesus is insane and so Jesus turns around and says get behind me Satan so Peter goes from being the future rock of the church to Satan uh, which makes sense because the last time Jesus was tempted was when Satan was doing it during the 40 days of temptation so get behind me Satan and then uh, he Jesus takes this name Peter Kepha rocky and uses it in a negative way he calls peter a stumbling block which is another play on rock so peter was a foundation but now he's being a stumbling block a rock in the road that people are tripping over so um, that word is used intentionally there are a number of things that could trip you but jesus is using the term rock um, so uh, after he talks about his death. Peter says, no, 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 no. You're not going to die. You don't have to do that. That's not true. You're God. Um, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And then he says to anyone who wants to follow me, you'll have to take up your cross. Uh, we know that Jesus is crucified on a cross. So that isn't, uh, it doesn't necessarily sound odd to us, but um, in modern days, this would be Jesus saying, anyone who wants to follow after me will have to sit in their own electric chair. 
cross, dying on a cross was the way that criminals died. Um, that was how they killed their criminals. Uh, the most heightened, degrading, embarrassing, shameful way to die was on a cross. And our equivalent today is an electric chair. And in the news today, that's been um, a very relevant topic. So <clears throat> it was as, as if Jesus said, if you are to follow me, you have to sit in your own electric chair. So Jesus predicts, I'm going to die like a criminal in this degrading, terrible way. And he says to his followers, you're going to have to do the same thing. Um, so that is, that's rough. That's a hard thing to hear. Um, these people don't even have enough faith to uh, understand what God is saying of spiritual understanding. And then Jesus lays this on them. So you can only imagine that their heads were totally reeling right now. Uh, and um, the final thing that Jesus says during this is that some of you will not taste death uh, before I come into my kingdom. And there's been a lot of debate about what that means. Does that mean some people think that it's when Jesus is transfigured? Some people think that means when Jesus ascends into heaven. Some people think that means when Jesus is going to come back and create the new heaven and the new earth. Um, I think we can safely rule out the last one because all of those people are dead and Jesus has not returned, so <laughs> as far as we know. So um, the best way to interpret that is to look at Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, Jesus or Daniel has a dream and uh, it's a prophetical dream. There are the four beasts that come and, uh, and in that dream, you can see the parallels of the language between um, what Jesus is saying and what that dream is predicting. So um, that's where the parallelisms come from there. So that's the end of chapter 16. We get now into chapter 17. Um, this is where Jesus is transfigured on the mountain in front of um, Peter, James, and John. Uh, will somebody read Matthew 17, 1 through 11? Yeah, go for it. 1 through 11, right? Mm -hmm. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. I felt like I should deepen my voice. <laughs> anyway, listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must first come? Jesus replied, To be sure 
Elijah comes and will Elijah comes and will restore all things. That's the end of eleven. Yeah. So there's a couple different pieces here. Um, first of all, is what does this idea of going up to the mountain and seeing Jesus' presence remind you of? Moses. Moses. And the whole concept of Matthew is that Jesus is the new Moses. So here we have a parallel that is undeniable. Uh, the only really difference is, is that when Moses goes up and sees God's back, his face comes down shining like the sun because he is reflecting God's glory. And here, it says Jesus' face is shining like the sun because it is his light that is shining forth. So instead of reflecting God, Jesus is God, therefore the light is his own. Uh, but all of this, very much like Moses. And actually Moses appears with Elijah. Um, additionally, the, the uh, language about uh, a cloud enveloping them, and that is God's presence. That's something that happened um, with the uh, ark, right? Is that, there's a couple of different times in the Old Testament where God's presence is a cloud. Um, so when the uh, Israelites were following around the cloud during the day and the fire, pillar of fire at night, um, and then there's at least one time um, where there's a cloud in, in the holy place around the... Cloud came down also, yeah, so um, this is very, the Jews would have immediately recognized that cloud as God's presence. And then um, there is this concept of if Jesus is the new Moses, then John the Baptist is the new what? Elijah. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels there too. And Elijah was a really big and continues to be a really big uh, figure in Jewish culture. At Passover, you leave an empty seat for Elijah because when he comes, that is um, a precursor to um, the Messiah coming. So um, Jesus, in that final, what he's saying to his uh, three apostles at the end is that uh, John the Baptist is the new Elijah. Elijah. Um, this idea that he came before the Messiah. John the Baptist came before me. And as far as where the mountain is, there's probably three, um, three finalists, per se, as to where um, historians think the transfiguration took place. Uh, the one you'll hear the most is Tabor. Um, however, it's not a very tall mountain, and it's not on the way from... Caesarea Philippi down to Capernaum. Uh, second most popular one is Hermon. You'll hear Hermon a lot. Um, and I, the problem with Hermon is that it's almost too high. Um, it would be like if Jesus and three disciples decided to camp on the top of Mount Everest. It's just insanely cold up there. So um, it seems, seems odd that um, staying on top of that mountain is something that they would be doing. Uh, Mirin is the one that uh, makes the most sense, if you ask me, um, be just because of its location. It's between Caesarea Philippi and Capernaum, and it is a mount, but it's not a Everest mount. You could s stay on the top where God is, 
uh, without freezing to death. Uh, so after the transfiguration, Jesus comes back, and just like when Moses was gone, everything went to heck with the Israelites. Jesus is gone, everything goes to heck with the disciples. They try to heal a boy um, who has seizures and then falls into fire and water, and they aren't able to do it. Uh, Jesus comes, immediately heals, heals the boy, and um, rebukes his disciples. If you had the faith even the size of a mustard seed, you would have been able to do this healing. Uh, so as far as the uh, illness goes, this is one of those illnesses that with our modern understanding of um, with our modern understanding of five minutes of medicine, uh, we would be like, well, the, the poor kid just had epilepsy. Um, it's one of those, it comes back to the idea of wholeness. So um, was the child unwhole because he had a physical illness? Was he unwhole because he had a spiritual attack from a demon? We're not sure, but it, in any sense, the child was not whole and Jesus made him whole again. Uh, but even if he did have epilepsy, it's possible that the demon possession was causing him to fall into harmful things when he did begin his seizures. That's why they mentioned that he's falling into fire and he's falling into water. Um, or it's possible that the demon possession was showing itself in the form of seizures. Uh, we just don't know. But in any sense, Jesus does heal him. And his disciples weren't able to. And Jesus says, if you had faith even the size of a mustard seed. This is another hearkening back to a parable that Jesus had said in chapter 13. He actually paired it with the parable of the yeast. So in these two chapters, we have these two parables that were paired together, both come back. So in that parable, you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, but a mustard tree is ginormous. So a very small thing has very big outcomes. Uh, and Jesus again mentions that if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. You could tell the mountains to move and they would. That's impressive to us. And uh, when you realize what, how Jews consider the concept of mountains, it's even more impressive. To us, where does a mountain start? Where's the bottom of a mountain? Yeah, the ground, base. Um, it, to Jews, uh, especially in the first century, the mountain has roots. It goes beneath the ground. So it's, it, we are only seeing the top half. It goes down into the ground as well. So the concept of moving a mountain is twice as impressive because that mountain's not moving from the ground up. Everything underneath is moving as well. And that is also a common uh, metaphor that is used in Jewish teaching, the idea of moving mountains. Yes, they have been. So they should have, they do have that power, and yet they're still not able to heal. Uh, so the very last thing that happens in chapter 17 is the temple tax. Uh, the uh, tax collectors come to Peter and Jesus and say, you owe your annual temple tax. This is something that has been done in Jewish culture since the time of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 30, um, Jesus commands Aaron and Moses to collect an annual tax. 
and uh, the tax is uh, a half shekel, which is the equivalent of two drachmas. Uh, drachmas are Greco-Roman, shekels are Jewish. Um, so that's something that's been happening since the ye olden days, even for first century Jews. It still happens, it's, it happens once a year. And uh, a shekel is about a week's worth of labor. So a half shekel would be a few days worth of labor. And um, a Tyrian shekel was specifically what was used to, uh, that was like the official coinage of the temple tax. Uh, if a coin that was made in Tyre, Tyrian, Tyre, uh, was a shekel, it was uh, a Roman coin and yet it's what the Jews used. And um, that was also probably what was found in the mouth of the fish. So Jesus says, it's fine, go out, the first fish you catch, look in its mouth, you'll find a coin, a four drachma coin. A, I use, I don't know, four drachma coin. Um, it was probably a Tyrian shekel, which is equivalent of four drachmas. Um, Athenian drachmas, where drachmas were created, had about 80% silver, so they weren't as pure as Tyrian shekels, which were about 97% silver. Uh, and uh, Jesus makes a lot of arguments about, well, who are taxes for? Taxes are used to support the king, so the king wouldn't tax his own family to support his family. That doesn't make any sense. So he's saying we shouldn't have to pay taxes, but if this is something that they want, this isn't a spirit issue, we'll pay the tax. I don't have to, but I'm going to do it anyway, because it would be something that would prevent other people from hearing my message if we were to not pay that tax. All right, any questions on chapter 16 or 17? Well, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Yeah. And then uh, they get they come back, and then two seconds later they're up on the top of the hill, and who shows up? <laughs> Moses and Elijah in front of Peter, who made the statement. And then Peter does the usual Peter thing of going like, "Hey, let's do a let's do a, a shelter for all three of them," because those that that those two are the are the top two in the pantheon of Jewish heroes, Moses and Elijah. And then a little side fact on Elijah's name in Aramaic means breacher. And you know, when they ask why does why do the, the scribes say Elijah must come first? Because if the king is coming, the way they fought wars, you have to have someone who breached the wall. Elijah's name in Aramaic actually is breacher. And so the breacher would breach the wall before the king would come through it. So the scribes in those days were saying Elijah must come because the breacher must come before the king comes. And so that's why Jesus looks back and says John the Baptist was Elijah. He was the breacher. 
because the king is now here. So that's even getting back into Jewish theology of that day. And that's why they keep saying, why did the scribes say? Well, and Jesus keeps saying over and over again, three chapters ago he said the same thing. A lot. John was Elijah. Because even, even John asked Jesus, when is Elijah coming? And basically John, Jesus says to John's disciples, John was Elijah. He was the man who was going to breach the wall so I as king can go through it. Awesome. I will see you guys next week. <laughs>